Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, December 27th, 2021. I'm joined today by Dr. Samantha Doe to talk about cholestasis of pregnancy. Samantha is a return guest on the podcast, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist in our practice, and we have been itching to drop this podcast. For those of you who did not catch that pun, you will understand after the podcast. As this is the last Healthful Woman podcast for 2021, I wanted to wish all of you a happy new year. Next week, in honor of the new year, I'm joined by Casey Seiden to talk about New Year's diets, which ones work and which ones don't. All right. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. See you Thursday on High Risk Birth Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Helpful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Dr. Samantha Doe, welcome back to the podcast. How goes it? Goes well. Thanks for having me back. It's great to see you. Great to have you. And we're talking today about intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy, aka cholestasis or IC. P, crazy topic. Crazy phenomenon. <laughs> really pregnancy-specific condition that we don't think about outside of pregnancy. Yeah. So how, how would you explain what it is to somebody? I would back up and think about what is cholestasis, what is intrahepatic, what, what are these terms we use and throw around. So intrahepatic, talking about in the liver, hepatic, mm -hmm. and cholestasis relating to bile. And bile is the substance that our liver makes that then gets stored in the gallbladder and then gets released into our intestines to help us process fat. Mm -hmm. And that process normally goes smoothly. But for whatever reason in pregnancy, women are at increased risk of having extra bile that builds up in the liver and then isn't properly getting kind of transported and causes problems for the fetus. Right. And so it it's technically a liver disease or liver condition it's not very common, but it's the most common one you're going to see during pregnancy. But what's also so interesting is it's not really dangerous for the mother. It can be dangerous to the fetus. So that alone is sort of very complex, and we'll get into that. But it's horrifically annoying for the mother. It's one of like the worst itching situations someone can have in pregnancy. What What do people sort of complain about. And I don't mean complain in a pejorative way. I mean, like they're genuinely in like distress. It's a really intense itching. And we're yeah. always trying to sort out, is it just regular itching in pregnancy? Because about 20% of moms will have just regular itching in pregnancy. That's not this, that's not worrisome, that's not bad. But in that much smaller subset, they'll have itching really of the palms and soles of the feet and itching that's worse at nighttime, sometimes itching that's worse off a hot shower. Yeah. And it's really fascinating, the, the idea that People will say, I have itching on my palms. They're like, what is going on here? Like, what the hell is happening here? My palms itch. Like, that's just a weird thing. And I think the thought is that when these, for whatever reason in pregnancy, for women who get this, that that sort of production and processing of bile gets slowed down and is a backup. And it, these little like bile salts, like these little crystals get into the circulation and then they lodge themselves under the skin where these little blood vessels are, and they're just really, really annoying. And one of the ways we differentiate it, or at least we, you know, initially from other forms of itching is just by asking. If someone says, yeah, the, you know, the back of my knees itch and the back of my elbows itch and my belly itches, usually it's just 
it's eczema, it's hot. It's like a lot of people get that. A lot of women with sort of allergic skin get that. That's more common in pregnancy. But if someone says, I don't know what's going on. I don't have any rash, but my palms itch and it's getting worse and worse. That's pretty indicative of this cholestasis of pregnancy. And like you said, it's really interesting. It's in the absence of a rash. We're thinking of a whole other host of things if there's a rash going on that's right. itching with no kind of skin changes that you can see, right. but is really miserable, especially for sleep at nighttime, that yeah. itching. And the only time a rash really comes out is once they start scratching. So you get like the scratching rash, but it's, it's typically you have a rash followed by itching and this is itching and the only rash that's followed is if they scratch it terribly. Now, do we know why some women get it and some don't? We don't have a great answer for that. We do think there is a genetic risk factor for it. So it clumps in families. We think women who are older are at more risk for it. Moms who have multiple pregnancies like twins and triplets are at more risk for it. Um, but we don't know who gets it other than women also with liver disease yeah. underlying have other kinds of liver disease are at increased risk for it in pregnancy. And also it's really fascinating because it does vary geographically, like it's more common in certain parts of the country or certain parts of the world by ethnicity. It does vary and also time of the year. And so there's a thought that in addition to genetic component, there's probably some environmental or, you know, seasonal component or some sort of exposure that's going on. And obviously the hormones of pregnancy is the third aspect. So, you know, pregnancy is a risk factor, something in the family history or genetic history and environment. The problem is that pretty much encompasses everything, right? What's left <laughs> other than genetics, environment, and pregnancy? There's really nothing else that could be. So it's, it's what we call multifactorial in that sense. Um, but it is, it is interesting. And when women get this, other than the fact that they're itching horribly, what is the concern? So you said no danger to the mom's health, but there's fetal risks. So we oh. think about increased risks of babies delivering early, both because they're more likely to go into preterm labor and because there's an increased risk that babies could pass away on the inside. So we're going to cause them to deliver early by inducing labor early and increased risk also of having meconium or poop in the amniotic fluid is the other thing we think about for babies. Yeah, I think when women get this diagnosis and either they Google it or we tell them about it, the part that's really the hardest to talk about is that middle one where there is a risk of stillbirth. And for whatever reason, having cholestasis puts the baby at an increased risk for stillbirth. Now, there's a few sort of aspects on that we should touch on. The first is why, and the second is how common, and the third is what do we do about it? So let's start with, again, we're just focusing on the stillbirth aspect because that's the, the most critical aspect of this diagnosis. Why? Like, why would a baby be at increased risk of stillbirth with the mom having something that's causing itching? It's sort of, it's like such a strange link. So those bile salts that you're talking about that are in mom's circulation, we think they can lodge in the placenta and cause a constriction of the placental vessels suddenly. That's not kind of a chronic placental process like other kinds of stillbirth that we're thinking about, but kind of a sudden placental problem. Or maybe they cross the placenta and cause the baby to have an irregular heartbeat, a fetal arrhythmia that can predispose to a stillbirth. Right. And one of the reasons that makes it more challenging is there are other conditions that increase the risk of stillbirth, you know, diabetes, high blood pressure, maternal age, there's a lot of things, you know, twins, but we do all these screening tests for it. And because the reason they, they're associated with stillbirth is they slowly affect the placenta over time. And so if you do these tests, you can ideally sort of note a change early and intervene and deliver before that happens. 
But what you're talking about is something that's not predictable other than having cholestasis, meaning someone has cholestasis, there's no test you can do on the placenta or on the baby's health that'll say, oh, this baby's at risk for stillbirth in the next week. And so it makes it even more challenging because A, we've dropped the bomb saying you're at increased risk of your baby having stillbirth. And B, there's no way we can predict it and intervene in advance. That's a that's a tough situation to be in. And we're still going to monitor and, and look and do fetal surveillance, but it is it is scary to know that risk isn't, it's higher than a baseline, but isn't insurmountable. That right. risk is probably in the one to 2% range right. of risk. So still 98 to 99% chance of not having a stillbirth. Right. But it's a terrifying thing to think about. Yeah. So, and we'll talk about sort of how we address that in, in, in the management section here. But yeah, the, the risk of stillbirth is thought to be in that one to 2% range. And it does vary based on how severe the condition is. And that's based on, we'll talk about the blood test that we send and how high the bile acid level is, but it's it's going to be in that range. And there's not much we can do about it in terms of prediction. And we'll talk about prevention. So that is sort of the the why that there's an increased risk of stillbirth. And because of that, the next thing we wanted to talk about is the second thing is how much of a risk is it? And so that was the, we just mentioned about one to 2%, let's say it could be higher. And the third is, what do we do about it? And I think the first thing is we try to number one, get a sense of is it actually cholestasis, right? The diagnosis, because it's not just the itching. And there is a blood test that we can send. So what are the blood tests that we would send if we suspect someone has cholestasis or might have cholestasis? So the two things we're going to send are a look at the liver enzymes in general, because it can affect the general liver enzymes. And then the real diagnostic test is specifically looking at the bile acids. Mm -hmm. And in general, we often use the total number of bile acids, although we can look at kind of various components of the bile acids also. And so that number, again, based on the exact lab, is usually a number that's lower than 10. Once it starts getting above 10, someone has the diagnosis, but the higher it gets, the higher the risk. People use different cutoffs. Like you'll hear people use a cutoff of 40 or a cutoff of 100 and sort of like putting you up to the next level. But those cutoffs are somewhat arbitrary. Uh, ultimately, the higher it is, the worse it is. And so that's part of the how, you know, how we deal with it and that we make sure that we have the right diagnosis or we do our best to make sure. And we sometimes will stratify the management based on the numbers. But that is sort of like step one is to confirm that this is going on. So what else do we do after we make a diagnosis and we have a blood test and we're confident someone has this and we've now told them that, oh my God, you're at increased risk of stillbirth. So what, what are the things we do in that situation? Step two then is starting medication for it. And the medication we'd call start is called Ursodiol or Actigal is the brand name of it. And it's a medication that moms take two to three times a day. And one of the really effective things that it does is it decreases that miserable itching. So it's it's the most effective medication we have for decreasing itching with no risk to the baby for it. In fact, some older data suggests maybe it's actually protective to the baby and might decrease that risk of stillbirth. So there's an added benefit. It might also might not, but it's certainly good for the itching and it might be protective for baby. Yeah. And the medication is basically something that it just helps the liver process those bile acids that the liver is not doing. So it sort of churns up the system. So it gets them out of the bloodstream. And definitely it helps a lot of women with the itching. Not everybody, but I would say the majority, the vast majority feel a lot better. And we can keep increasing the dose to a certain amount until they get there. It usually lowers their bile acids as well at the same time. And like you said, it you would think that that would decrease the risk. Sort of you're thinking like, well, if the condition causes high bile acids and if the high bile acids 
can cross the placenta. And if they can cause the fetal death, you would think that lowering the bile acids should lower the risk of fetal death. But we don't know that to be true. And so we don't rely on it in that sense, meaning if someone has a condition and we treat them and then they feel better and their numbers are better, we don't sort of consider them as not having it anymore. And I think part of the reason we don't know that is I don't think people have really had the guts to test out you know, what to do if that happens, meaning because we also deliver people early. And that's really the biggest factor in decreasing the risk of stillbirth, I believe, is delivering early. So explain sort of what we do and why that would sort of work logically. So our thought process is that this is stillbirth that happens, like we talked about, suddenly, but usually late in pregnancy, on average, usually around 38 weeks. So we're thinking about delivering before that. And it has been reported earlier. So we often deliver as early as 36 weeks Mm -hmm. when we see this increased risk from having intrapatic cholestasis or pregnancy uh, to prevent going on to have a stillbirth by continuing pregnancy. Right. I mean, it's always a balance. You could deliver immediately. You know, someone gets diagnosed at 33 weeks, you could deliver then. But the problem is, all right, you're going to avoid that risk of stillbirth, but now you have a 33-week baby that's going to potentially have complications from prematurity. And you have to serve how you balance those two. There isn't one right answer because the risk of stillbirth isn't exactly known. And the risk of the complications of prematurity, you may have percentages, but you don't know where your baby's going to fall out. So we try not to deliver earlier than 36 weeks unless something crazy is going on. But we also try not to deliver past, you know, 37, 38. Occasionally, some people stretch it to 39 weeks. Uh, in Europe, they'll stretch it even longer. But it's it's one of these things where you're trying to balance it individually. But the thought is that once the baby is born, their risk of death is essentially zero, right? I mean, unless there was some other reason, right? From the cholestasis, it's gone. Because once the baby's out of that environment, you've stopped that risk from happening. And so if you get to 37 weeks and you know there's a 1% to 2% risk of stillbirth, you're like, listen, I'd much rather deliver a baby 37 weeks than walk around with that risk, especially knowing there's nothing we can do to predict it and maybe stratify. You know, this has sort of undergone evolution over the years and what we do. I don't know how you feel about this, you know, whether should we go earlier towards 36 or later towards 38, 39? Do you have a perspective on that? I think it's a combination of a conversation with the patient and the kind of their tolerance for risk and our tolerance for risk on both sides, the risks of prematurity, which is slight, um, but not nothing, and the risks of stillbirth, which is a really terrible outcome, um, and also stratifying their risk based on their bile acids level. I'm much more likely to encourage someone who has a bile acids above 40 to deliver on the 36-week range, as opposed to if someone's bile acids are 11, to think about a 37-week delivery for them. Yeah, it, it's hard to balance you know, a 1% to 2% risk of something horrible versus a, let's say, 10 to 20% risk of something probably not as horrible. Like, how do you balance those two? It's very, very hard. And again, I think one of the really important things is, and this is true for people who Google it, and it's true even when we're with the medical students and residents who pull up scientific articles on it saying, oh, this doesn't you know, decrease the risk of stillbirth, or this doesn't decrease the risk of stillbirth. The only way to know if something changes the risk of stillbirth, like is to really randomly treat people differently and not deliver them early, wait till they go into labor. So like, for example, if I was doing the checking, does ursodile, does the medication lower the risk of stillbirth? Well, I would have to give half the group ursodile, half the group not ursodile, and not induce anybody and see what happens. Now, no one's doing that study at this point because everyone has cholestasis, wants to be delivered early, rightfully so. And so 
All you can say is that giving the medication and delivering at 37 weeks, the medication isn't the aspect. And I think that's why when we talk to patients about interventions, the only intervention that works is delivering early. That's it. That's all we have. And so with that, I agree. I, I tend to go 37 weeks, like latest, <laughs> 36 weeks uh, on the earlier side. And I'll, I'll sometimes stratify based on the numbers or based on their anxiety or based on whatever it might be, uh, which is all legitimate, obviously. And because both doctors and patients don't want to do that randomized trial, the best we have are things like decision analyses, which try and figure out kind of like in a hypothetical scenario, what would be the best of its impossible risk to try and balance. But kind of one decision analysis says deliver at 36 weeks. Another kind of recent study says there isn't really an increased risk until your bilas is above 100, but that's in the study of everyone delivering early. It's yeah. usually part of the management. So it's it's really a hard thing to suss out, but I like your strategy. Yeah. And it's why you'll find different things in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, because people look at numbers differently. And I think one of the important things for people listening to the podcast is there isn't one way to do it. And so if, for example, you're seeing someone and they're recommending a delivery and it's earlier than you think it should be, speak up. Or on the opposite, if you think it's not early enough compared to what you think it should be, talk about it, right? This should be a conversation with your doctor, with your midwife, maternal fetal medicine doctor, whoever's taking care of you, because your opinion matters a lot in this, because it's not a right or wrong. It really is tolerance or risk. Some people are very uncomfortable with risk and would much rather deliver on the earlier side, and other people think that we're just all nuts and would rather deliver on the later side. And that's fine. And it's important to bring it up yourself and not just be accepting of whatever is just thrown at you if you feel that it's wrong. Obviously, you feel that it's right, you know, great. One uh, important consideration with the diagnosis is that it's diagnosis that can take time to 100% solidify and that bile acids aren't an immediate turnaround lab. They can take some time to come back. Oh, so yeah. sometimes when we get to 37 weeks and we have a mom who's having really classic itching and the liver enzymes that come back in a couple hours are high, we don't wait for those bile acids to come back because the clinical diagnosis is so convincing and that risk of stillbirth is so... Yeah, that's a really important point. This is a lab test that frequently does not come back the same day. And sometimes it takes a week in certain parts. And that is just a tough situation. And then sometimes you're left with, we think she has it. We're pretty sure she has it. We don't have the confirmation on the blood test. And that's another situation to talk about. You know, Are we confident enough that we're willing to just deliver? Or are we going to wait? And a lot of that depends on exactly how bad the symptoms are. What's her history? If she's had a three straight pregnancies versus is her first pregnancy? And it's tough, but that is sometimes a decision that has to be made. Now, we said that the fetal testing isn't so helpful in terms of predicting stillbirth. At least we don't believe it's helpful in terms of predicting stillbirth. But what testing might someone undergo or might be recommended despite that? Despite that, what we're going to recommend is at least weekly, sometimes more often, kind of depending on your provider, depending on your bioassis level, looking at signs of placental health with the thought that maybe we'll catch something right as it's developing. And it also gives us reassurance that there isn't another chronic placental process going on. And the two ways we do that are something called non-stress tests, not non-stress because it's not stressful for moms to have to have weekly testing, but because we're not putting any stress in the baby, we're just listening to the baby's heartbeat on the outside, like you do with labor and delivery monitoring, or something called a biophysical profile or a BP. PP as an ultrasound way of assessing placental health. Right. And then in terms of once we've made a decision uh, that we're going to deliver early, do moms have an, uh, do they need a C-section for this? Great question. No, moms don't need a C-section for this. In labor, we're going to monitor baby the entire time. So right. we 
think that stillbirth risk is really low during labor because we're watching baby on the monitor 100% of the time. And so we would induce labor unless there's another obstetric reason or pregnancy history reason why moms have to have a C-section separate from the diagnosis. I agreed. I mean, since we're monitoring continuously in labor, we have that constant reassurance that things are going okay. And so the cholestasis aspect is fortunately gets to sort of move to the back of our minds as opposed to the front of our minds once that happens, once they're getting on continuous monitoring. And one of the really fascinating aspects of this condition that I've always found is after mom delivers, her itching gets better like immediately, like within a day. It's the craziest thing. She could have the worst itching and it's horrible, horrible, horrible. She delivers and it's just like gone. In the rare cases where it doesn't get better, yeah. we think it's a different diagnosis yeah. and she needs to see a liver specialist yeah. for yeah. workup of a liver condition because interhepatical cholestasis should get better right after delivery. Yeah. And it, it is, it's really fascinating. There, there are some data that maybe women who get cholestasis have a slightly increased risk of either having a liver condition. Again, it's obviously not going to be that severe because nothing else is going on, but some subtle liver condition that this brought out or at risk for it in the future. Uh, but that's not, you know... Um, certainly most women who get cholestasis will never get it again unless they get pregnant again or potentially uh, on oral contraceptive pills. And what do you tell women is the likelihood it's going to happen in their second pregnancy? She has in her first pregnancy. What's the likelihood she gets pregnant again? It's going to happen again. It's really high. Um, Some studies say up to 90% of moms who've had it before will have it again. Some studies say it's lower, more like 50%, but it's very common to have it again in subsequent pregnancies. Yeah, it seems to be more than 50%. It it is fascinating. Sometimes we'll have someone who had a really bad case in the next pregnancy. They don't. Occasionally, it's because they had twins the first time or something else changed in their life. But there is a pretty high chance. And I think that certainly suggests some genetic component, if not the most important part, at least one important part of it. But yeah, it's something that women have to assume is going to happen again. And if they're lucky that it doesn't, that'd be great. And one of the interesting things is it may affect their ability to take oral contraceptive pills because the estrogen in those could also bring about cholestasis, even though it's not as high as pregnancy, it's high enough for some women that they can't take those. The good news is there's lots of progesterone-only contraceptive options. It's one of these conditions we talk about a lot because it's really something where I feel I wish we knew more, and we just don't. We we understand when it happens. Uh, unfortunately, that sometimes is not the case. Sometimes we'll see women who had a stillbirth, and then when we talk to them about it, they'll sort of say, yeah, like, we'll ask them, did you have any symptoms a week before? How was the baby moving? And then sometimes, like, did you have any itching? And I'm like, yeah, like crazy itching the week before the baby died. And No one picked up on that, which is unfortunate, but we just don't understand why. Like, why is it only 1%, you know, if it's such a bad condition, why isn't it higher? Why isn't it lower? Why do the bile acids do it in one baby, not another? Why does it happen later in pregnancy, not earlier? Why can't we predict it? You know, does the treatment lower the risk? When should we deliver? There's so much uncertainty that I find that these consultations that I have for women who have it or have a history of it somewhat unsatisfying in the sense because it's really displaying our ignorance to everybody and it's 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 hard to do research on it those are all true bottom line for moms is if you're having itching of the palms and soles let your doctor know itching in pregnancy can be normal but particularly itching of the palms and soles let your doctor know and those can precede changes in your liver function test the blood work um, so it's always good to have a heads up about those what yeah. you're feeling and, and listen to your patients yeah we definitely see that we see women who have you know a lot of women come with itching and we're pretty confident it's not cholestasis, you know, because it's the rash on their belly or whatever it is. And we send labs, we don't send labs, but we're pretty confident it's not, ends up not being that and, and that's fine. 
And then we see women who have a really classic story. Like you said, their palms are itching, their souls are itching. Like, oh, wow, that sounds like cholestasis. And we talk to them about it and this and we send blood work and it's perfectly normal. And then we scratch our head saying, well, that's odd. Like, do they have it? Do they not have it? And then a week later, we send the blood test again because the itching persists and they're elevated. Now, sometimes the itching goes away and it's a fluke. We have no idea why it was there. But if it persists, again, this is something that we should be repeating blood tests over and over and over because it really can make the difference in knowing if there's a risk of stillbirth or not. And that is another thing. This is one of the situations where for doctors who know about it, and you know, OBGYNs are trained, they're supposed to know about this, but sometimes things get missed. Sometimes people don't ask about symptoms. For the women listening, it is itching is a symptom we want to know about in pregnancy. Even if it's 90% of the time not going to be this, and we'd rather know and tell you it's not this, than not know and not know about this. Because again, that's the only s- symptom or sign that may precede uh, something like a stillbirth. Really important to listen to our patients and know what you're feeling. Sam, this is a great podcast, short and sweet, but a really important topic. Thanks for having me on. Glad to discuss it. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.